This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. On today's show, we'll be paying tribute to the poetry of Thomas Kinsler, who died this week, aged 93. And it's Christmas Eve 2021. Peter and I would really like to pay tribute as well to all you listeners for tuning into our Books for Breakfast over the year. And we'd also like to say a big thank you to all the writers who've come on, who've spoken to us about their brilliant books, but who have also risen to the Toaster Challenge. And so to celebrate our 41st episode of Books for Breakfast, we'd like to play back for you some of the writers who we've enjoyed chatting to, and we hope that you'll enjoy them. So here's a taster of some of the brilliant writers who've been at our breakfast table. Sometimes it's in those little, sometimes it's those little things. One of my favourite things that Berryman ever wrote is a tiny fragment which I came across in the archives, you know, 20 years ago. And it simply reads, detached, involved, Henry sang, detached, involved. And it's that sense of being kind of detached from the world at times, but also deeply involved and deeply committed to it. These are, these are the two kind of poles, I think, within which his work operates. Okay, so I'm going to start. Um, they're driving home, and there's five kids in the car. And the mother's driving, and they're they're fighting, and the mother's getting frustrated. The car skidded into the shoulder, right where 252 crossed the turnpike. Out, get out. My mom said it with her voice low, which let us know she meant it. Ellen reached across Thomas, opened the back door, and started to climb out. You can't leave her here, Marie said. She started to gather her bag from the floor of the front. Ellen was standing on the gravel verge of the overpass in her school pinafore, tennis shirt, and knee socks. Marie was opening her door when my mother threw the car into gear and accelerated forward. I looked back. Ellen was facing away from us, looking down over the bridge while columns of cars funneled along the turnpike. Mom, don't, please, Thomas said, but she didn't answer. After I'd published the poems, 1980, 2015, I felt very liberated. I felt, well, I've done that, that's that, and now I want to do something completely different. So the book contains poems, prose poems, a memoir, photographs, paintings, and an essay from 1991, which kind of is a sort of a commentary on what's gone before, even though it's chronologically later. So Liberty Hall, for me, has lots of different connotations. First of all, it's a building, and a lot of the book is about architecture, and architecture as memory, frozen memory. But it also has an historical connotation because Liberty Hall is where the 1916 rising started and when I was a child because my parents were trade unionists I was often in Liberty Hall so it also has an emotional thing. So Peter what have you got for us today? I think I recognise that book and I'm really interested in hearing what you've got to say about it. Yeah it's one I've had for a while it's one of those I don't know almost like magical books that you take with you everywhere it's called The Poetics of Space by Gaston Bachelor. I mean, the first time actually that I came across this was I was reading a book by Thomas McCarthy back in 1982, his collection of poems, The Sorrow Garden. And in these poems, Bachelor's images and Professor Bachelor, and they kind of mined images from Bachelor's kind of pioneering works on the imagination and childhood and reverie and the magical spaces of houses. The book I've chosen is Secondhand Time by Svetlana Alexievich, translated by Bela Shevich. Svetlana Alexievich is a Belarusian writer. She was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2015. Alexievich's books are essentially oral histories. She has described herself as, a, as an historian of feeling or a historian of the untraceable. 
Secondhand Time explores the collapse of the Soviet Union and the effect of that collapse on ordinary men and women of former Soviet states. The book is an astonishing collection of voices. Alexievich is an extraordinary writer, but what seems to go hand in hand with that is her ability to listen, to elicit narrative from others, to absent herself from the narrative so that others can assume that narrative role. Um, well, what compelled me, I think, was the nature of the story. Um, it's, it's such an interesting one, this relationship between these two men from such completely different backgrounds. And when I moved sort of from Stella Tilliard's biography on to reading some of the letters, it was the way in which I suppose Tony's conveyed in the letters, the Fitzgerald letters, not just from Edward himself, but he's mentioned in much of the family um, correspondence. Yeah, ideas of home, of the retrieval of home and the loss of home, and lots of sex. I used to have loads and loads. I mean, this is, I mean, honest. you know, I used to have loads and loads of sex in my poetry. Nobody ever noticed. And then now I publish a novel that has loads of sex in it, and everybody says, oh my God, you've got loads of sex in it. And I said, well, I've been doing this for years, for God's sake. So when you say that you loved my poetry, okay, you didn't actually notice the sex at all. I think you've just upped the sales now. I think Gallery Press will be delighted. I think, I think, I think there'll be a run. no <laughs> I view cherry blossoms in the ancient palace of Nara, exquisite. Each double layer reveals another inner sanctum. I am consumed by my own thoughts, vexed with those I love and those I loathe. This world has lost its zest. See the reeds of Nanawa Lagoon, that brief span between each notch. Are you saying we've only been apart that long? Already it's another world. Okay, I'm going to talk about Nan Shepherd's book. The Living Mountain, and this is one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. It's been described in The Guardian as the finest book ever written on nature and landscape in Britain. And the only person, the only book that I can compare to is Tim Robinson's Stones of Iron. It's a really short book, though, just 12 chapters. Uh, it's an introduction by Robert McFarlane. He said he was given it by a friend in 2003 and he was changed after reading it. Claims to have read it 12 times and there's an afterward by Janet Winterson. The dereliction was almost beautiful, the houses dark against the mauve dawn, pools of buff-coloured water glinting briefly as a passing car took the last bend before town. Number seven was starting to look like the other units, the lawn stringy with brown weeds. The footpath petered out and Sarah landed hard in a puddle, picking her way over broken masonry and loops of cable until she reached the end of the cul-de-sac. The noise was coming from the show house, it looked even worse inside than out. Clots of dung littered the travertine floor. All the doors had been taken, including the front one, which only seemed to emphasise how small the rooms were. I love old graveyards, and uh, I remember wandering around the cemetery in a tie and coming across what I thought was this solitary First World War stone. Now, as it turned out, there were many more in that graveyard and, and many, many more in the parish. 
And I was fascinated by the fact my father, who was born in 1908, had spoken to me about how as a child he remembered funerals in a thigh and he remembered. And as far as I know, it had the highest per capita death rate for any town. Meat. I sucked marrow from bones at dinner, my father's face a bloody grin of pride. I ate liver in chunks for breakfast, pink and firm, jewels to adorn my insides. I gloried in the feel of flesh, the exertion of the chew. Holding my mother's hand in the English market, I saw them. Turkey chandeliers plucked, bruised purple eyelids, dainty light bulbs. Their smell, fresh as the insides of my mouth. Mother stroked my hair, they're there. I refused to eat meat, became pillowy, meek. What's your soup of the day? Carrot and human, the girl said taking a pencil and pad out of her apron pocket. Excuse me, said Nora. Could you repeat that? Carrot and human. The girl spoke a little slower this time. Carrot and human? Nora stared at the waitress. Sorry, what was the second thing? Cumin, the girl said. Oh, cumin, I said. The spice, she means the spice, Nora. Cumin, not human. I remember having wet hair and being too impatient to dry it, suddenly curious to see what Higgins looked like. Suppose, I thought idly, he turns out to be someone significant in my life, and his first view of me is of an otter-like wet head. I dismissed this untypical romantic thought from my thoroughly rational mind and headed for the bar. And there he was, in a wine-red sweater, medium height and build, long reddish-brown hair, beard, granny glasses, slightly stooped, engaged in close conversation with an enormous Viking called Sven. Yeah, I mean, I found this this collection of stories really absolutely riveting. I loved, just to go back to the title of it as well, Peter, the title Trouble. I liked that idea that trouble does follow each character throughout the book. Isn't that right? I I think it does. Uh, Take the opening story, for instance. I once owned a house in Bucharest, she tells us. So we're wondering immediately, why the past tense? What happened? And then he goes on to explain, this is how it happened. At at the end of the last century, I was working in Dublin for a security company on night shifts. I guarded a distillery. Heart song. I see the deer long after it sees me kept breathing by inhibitors and fibrates beyond my natural span. Both our pulse rates ramp up around now. I'll bet that he or she is reckoning I might stop at its heart with lead, surviving even longer on its flesh. I'll bet my presence is enough to flush it to the woods with something, much like dread. But for a while we're here, stock still, alone, except for swarms of polyphonic insects. It lays down beats to do with dying and sex. Beats I can't hear, I only hear my own. We've got no lyrics yet, although the song is old as our two species. And do we need some new ones now? So it gives a nod, kind of, before it flings itself headlong into the piney shadows, startling birds. The forest murmurs something now and again. I take my pills years after it has gone and hang around here trying to catch the words. 
I went to Japan and uh, when I was there, I realized, okay, it's pretty far away. I mightn't go back there or I don't know when I would. And, and also it was my first time there. So I felt that I absolutely had to go to Hiroshima because for me, historically, it would be very odd to go to Japan and not to go there. Okay, that's, that's, that's my interest. And when I was there, after I came back, I wrote a non-fiction piece, a piece for the Irish Times, but it never quite, to me, managed to say exactly what I really experienced when I was there, which was, how could anybody have such hope as to deliberately get pregnant? And I'm saying deliberately, as opposed to just getting pregnant, as in that, you know, it would happen. Like, I think every single thing that was done, every block that was laid in Hiroshima was an act of bravery. Every single thing that any human being did. This poem is called Separation, and it's about my dad taking me to school for the first time. And I can still remember vividly how momentous and yet unreal it all seemed. Separation. It's like a Sunday outing to the Downs. A batsman strolling out on Shamley Green as if he thinks the summer has no end. But then the road begins to twist like a gut and the last bend flips us into autumn. Across a ridge, the school stretches the sunset like the thin red line of Balaclava. We drive in silence through the iron gates and park, get out, as calm as undertakers. I can't believe the journey's at an end, but just starting. A bell rings, like fate. We stand, talk like friends of friends. Then Dad recites the pep talk he's rehearsed. My ears can hardly bear each kindly phrase. My eyes are turning to my bedroom posters and I wonder what my mum is doing now. Shelling peas or watching songs of praise. I get a hug from Dad and watch him go. He drives off with a grin that's not his own and takes my childhood home. No, we, di- we really didn't have books. My parents left school, I think they were 13 and 14, and, and then they, they started farming and had six children. So really, if there had been books, I don't know that there would have been much time to read them anyhow. Although my mother, my mother would have read whatever would have come in. But I, only, I remember just a few books in the house we had. We had a Bible, which was unread, but I used to go down into the parlour and look at all the plates because they used to terrify me. You know, they had these beautiful coloured plates and Lazarus and, you know, St. John the Baptist, you know, the, his head on a plate and those things. And I, I used to go down and I wasn't really supposed to be in the parlour. You know, a lot of houses had a room like that and I wasn't meant to be down there, but I used to go down there and look at those things. And we had a few Walter Mackins my sister brought home and my aunt used to come and, and leave Mills and Boons behind her. She she was great. She'd just read them in one sitting and say it was rubbish and then go buy another one and say the same thing. And apart from that, I mean, I just had ladybird books as, as a child. And, you know, people people think all the time that children should read. And I, I don't disagree. But at the same time, maybe maybe not having any 
thing to read enriches your imagination. Because I just didn't have TV and I didn't have anything to read. So I used to just go around up the wood and there was a wood all around the farm and imagine things. And and may, maybe that was a good thing for a good way for, for a writer to begin. And that was, in order of appearance, Philip Coleman, Una Mannion, Michael O'Loughlin, Endo Wiley and Peter Sir, Leanne Quinn, Laura McKenna, Connor O'Callaghan, James Hadley, Nell Regan, Moya Cannon, Louise Kennedy, John McKenna, Victoria Kennefick, Madeleine Darcy, Alana Hopkin, Justin Quinn, Evelyn Conlon, James Harper and Claire Keegan. strange experience (laughs) and uh, very complicated. It's uh, been very demanding. I have, uh, of course, great pleasure in hearing so many admired and esteemed voices acknowledging my life's effort. But it has been uh, demanding in that I've had to sit still during the entire process. And it also has been uh, slightly uh, painful because I know that such an experience is uh, granted only towards the end of one's life's work. And there is no way I can adequately thank both the uh, admired uh, colleagues who have been so kind and yourselves for coming and for placing this experience at the end of a great week and in this great place. But I can only thank all of you sincerely and uh, will hope to convince the individuals when I have them cornered individually, that I really mean what I say. But from here, I believe that my best thanks, while I have all of them uh, captive as a unique and an extraordinary group, that uh, risking saturation and I think also a certain amount of depression, I'm going to read you three recent, very short poems one still unpublished. And uh, in these poems, the growing uh, doubts and certainties of that lifetime are trying to live together. It's uh, The two published poems are from that recent book, uh, Belief and Unbelief. And there are two prayers. The first In a disordered and misguided community, it is the accomplished and the more fulfilled who are to be found to one side, unwilling to take part. 
Dear God, let the minds and hearts of the main body heal and fulfill. And we will watch for the first sign of redemption. A turning away from regard beyond proper merit or reward beyond real need toward the essence and the source. And the second very short prayer that the humours settling hard in our heart may add to the current of understanding that the rough course of the way forward may keep us alert for the while remaining. The third and last poem, untitled as yet, and she said, there is an inadequacy and an imbalance in the source material. This is the basis of energy. And there is a dysrhythmia in some among you, the alert, the demanding and still unfulfilled, a restlessness and a concentration on the particular as the mind looks for any evidence of purpose. This gives no pleasure except in relief but welcome it if it is offered and use it to the full. Trusting that there will be an easement in the uncertainty at a time to come. But resigned, she turned away, the phrases tired, if there is not. Good night and thank you again. That was Thomas Kinsler reading at a special event in 2007 in the Gate Theatre when fellow poets, critics and writers paid tribute to his poetry by reading a selection of his work in the presence of the poet and his family. It was hosted by Joe Woods for Poetry Ireland and held in association with the Dublin Writers' Festival. I was there that night and you get a sense of the man, kind of humorous and serious, dedicated, utterly dedicated to, to, the, to, the, to the work. I remember John F. Dean writing about it later, saying that he had sent out the powerhouses of Irish writing coming together to honour a poet whose work had, down the decades, commanded great respect, some controversy, and a growing number of avid devotees. And indeed, many devotees of Thomas Kinsella and his great work have been praising um, his poetry and have been leading tributes to him. First and foremost, the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, has said, all those with a love of Irish poetry and culture will be saddened to have learned today of the death of Thomas Kinsler, one of Ireland's finest poets. His reputation at home and abroad was one of being of a school that sought an excellence that did not know borders. And he goes on to say, not least his work tackling the gap between the aspirations of what Irish society should be and that which he saw before him. That ethical pursuit was attempted through rigorously honed lines. So Peter, that that description of his work, rigorously honed lines, do you think that that's a very astute and perceptive comment on his work? Well, sure. And I mean, it is is certainly true of the early Kinsler. So it's the Kinsler that we all encountered first. I mean, you know, the, if you think of it, because I, I still go back to the, the Gus Martin um, anthology soundings, doesn't it? And, September, you know, the, the one that had another September and mirror in February and those, I suppose, you know, the, the, the first people's, people's first experience of Thomas Kinsler, the first poet in that anthology who was, or the only poet in that anthology who was actually alive at the time. But yeah, 
that's what struck you at the time. I mean, these were these were kind of perfect sort of lyrics and very carefully constructed. And a lot of his early work is is like that. I mean, obviously, I mean things like Another September, Lady of Quality, Cover Her Face, Mirror in February. So that's very much the early Kinsler. But it starts to change a bit, you know, from say Nightwalker and other poems from that point onwards. He, he becomes a, a different kind of poet. He's more kind of grounded, if you like, in the process and in, in the difficulty of utterance and in maybe avoiding that sort of authority that he had in the early um, work and for which he was admired. In a way, he starts to kind of leave some of those early readers behind and he kind of came to us since then as a sort of like a sequence of voices, all sort of subdued and questioning and speaking painfully out of what he calls failure and increase and the stagger and recovery of spirit. Yes, you're right. He was such a wide ranging poet. I often think it's really interesting, do you, Peter, about where do such great poets come from? How do they begin? How do they start? Well, Thomas Kinsella was born in Dublin. He went to school in the model school in Inchicore. Then he went to, on to O'Connell schools, the Christian Brothers. But he gave up a science scholarship at UCD and he actually entered the civil service, which, I mean, you wouldn't expect that for a poet of his calibre. But he stayed there for 19 years and he reached the post of assistant principal officer in the Department of Finance. I mean, Peter, he actually was T.K. Whittaker's private secretary, wasn't he? Yeah, he he was. That's that's right. And I suppose, you know, it's maybe a less well-remembered aspect of his career sometimes. But yeah, he was, that's right. He was private secretary to, to T.K. Whitaker. And that kind of experience as a higher civil servant comes into the work very much. I mean, you see it there in, in Nightwalker. Um, he refers to the work and 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 this veiled kind of references to Charles Hohey in 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 the in the work as as well. But he was a very able civil servant and and yeah, and I think they both spoke Irish fluently. So I think that might have been a connection. And Whitaker often said, "My private secretary, the poet." But anyway, Kinsler went on. He finished an arts degree at UCD through night classes. He then published poems in 1956 and another September in 1958. And I think around 1963, he headed to the United States and he had many more poetry collections out. He had a Guggenheim Fellowship. He had a professorship of English at Temple University and he founded Pepper Canister to publish his own verse. And then he came back to Ireland in 1976. And I think Pepper Canister Press was finally subsumed in John F. Dean's Deadless Press. But Dublin, he came back to Dublin in 1976, Peter. Thomas McCarthy, the poet, said, we can only stand back amazed at the achievements of his long life, at the assertions of a Dublin consciousness in every one of his books. Yes, his passing marks the end of that Dublin era of the truly great. So a Dublin poet through and through, Peter. I think it's very fitting that the Dublin flags on the Mansion House and City Hall will fly at half-mast to mark his passing. And also, I remember, do you remember going to Dublin City Hall on May the 24th, 2007, when he was given the honorary freedom of the city of Dublin? Do you remember that occasion, Peter? I remember that occasion very well. But yeah, and it, is, it is true. I mean, what, what Tom McCarthy says, I mean, he is a, obviously, in many ways, he's a poet of, of Dublin. And different different Dublins, in fact. I mean, there's the Dublin of his early adulthood, you know, the, the, the Georgian Dublin where he was living, you know, the, the Dublin of, for instance, Baggett Street, Deserta, my quarter inch of cigarette goes flaring down to Baggett Street. All, all of that, or the Dublin of the Nightwalker, and the Dublin of the time he's living in in the, you know, near the Pepper Canister uh, Church um, that, that he names his his own publisher from. And there's also a different Dublin. Then there's also the Dublin that starts to come to the fore kind of later on in the work from say new poems, 
1973 onwards. I mean, the, the poems where he goes back into his childhood and he evokes his childhood with a huge kind of troubled intensity of focus that, you know, kind of slows down time and creates a whole series of freezes. I'm thinking of poems like A Hand of Solo or Ancestor or Tear or, or Hen Woman. But there's a lot of poems about, about his, his early years. A poem like Irwin Street, for example. Under the leaves, the road was empty and fragrant with little lances of light. He was coming towards me, my maker, in a white jacket and with my face. How could he be there at this hour? Our steps hesitated in awkward greeting. Oh, they're beautiful lines to hear. And he said of Dublin, Dublin gave many important things, their first shape and content for me. I learned to look at the world through the rich reality of the inner city. Well, Peter, I'd love to hear the rich reality of the inner city now. And one of my favourite Kinsella poems is a poem called Westland Row. Uh, It's got music in it. It's got mystery in it. It's got a woman and a man in it. It's got the sounds of the city. You really feel like you were there on Western Rose. So would you read that for me? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it is a mysterious poem in lots of ways. And like a lot of Kinsella is. I mean, this, like Western Rose mixes, you know, on the one hand, you have the intensely personal and the visionary. You've got all these kind of opposing forces of arrival and departure. You've got movement and stasis. You've got cold and renewal, the male and the female, the lover and the beloved, time, timelessness, the underworld, the world of air and light, intimacy and dispersal. But it's it's a really mysterious and compelling sort of poem. And every every time I read it, I find myself completely in its grip, but I also find myself completely sort of puzzled by, by lots of things. As I'm about to read, I'm, I'm thinking of Eamon Grennan's comment that you have to, you kind of have to experience, like, a po- it's almost like, it's not so much understood as experienced. It's um, uh, the case with a lot of Kinsler poems. Wes and Rowe. We came to the outer light down a ramp in the dark, through eddying cold gusts and grit, our ears stopped with noise. The hands of the station clock stopped, or another day vanished exactly. The engine departing hammered slowly overhead, dust blowing under the bridge. We stooped slightly with briefcases and books and entered the wind. The savour of our days restored, dead on nostril and tongue, drowned in air, We stepped on our own traces, not on stone, nodded and smiled distantly and followed our scattering paths, not stumbling, not touching, until, in a breath of benzene from a garage mouth, by the Academy of Music coming against us, she stopped an instant in her wrinkled coat and ducked her childish cheek in the coat collar to light a cigarette, seeing nothing, thick-lipped, in her grim composure, daughter-wife, look upon me. And just listening to that really beautiful, mysterious poem, I was thinking, Peter, that many of his poems enact intensely private dramas. You could hear that private drama, you know, beating its way through that poem, obsessively attentive to that private drama. And I think you feel as well that this is a well-crafted, hard-worked poem. But as a poet, it wasn't an easy route for him to achieve what he did. In one of his poems, he says, I've devoted my life my entire career to the avoidance of affectation, the way of entertainment. He was really a very independent poet. He had an independent spirit. He was indifferent to literary fashions of the time. He he really concentrated 
on what he felt he should concentrate on in his poetry. Isn't that right, Peter? What What would you say about that? A poet of great independence. Yeah, I mean, it's good that you quoted those lines. I mean, it's it, you know they say a lot. I mean, I have devoted my life, my entire career, to the avoidance of affectation, the way of entertainment, or the specialist response with always the same outcome: dislike, misunderstanding. But I will do what I can. So there's always a sense of there's a sense of Kinsella on the edge of things, and you know, because I cut off from a lot of Irish life. And I think what happened also to him was at the time that he was becoming this questing modernist kind of poet. You know, you had you had the great success of a, of a very different kind of poetry. People like Seamus Heaney and Derek Mahan and Michael Longley coming, you know, the Northern generation kind of coming into their own, and and writing a, a very kind of approachable sort of uh, sociable sort of poetry by his lights. You know, whereas his his is kind of dark and subdued and internal. And and I think he felt in a way slightly marginalised. But it's, I think it's important to remember as well that you know he he's not one kind of poet. He did he, he did a lot of different uh, kind of work. I mean, don't forget the great work as a as a translator. You know the tone, mm-hmm. um, all all of that. Then there's there's the public side of him, which sometimes we get we get or we forget about as well. Like the the, the savage satire of his condemnation of the of the Widgery report after the 1972 Bloody Sunday, you know, in Butcher's Dozen. I mean, nobody, nobody wrote a poem like that. I mean, I mean, that's an extraordinary poem. And again, a testament to his total kind of integrity as, as a writer. That's right. I think he was a poet of huge moral authority and bravery and courage, Peter, as well. Well, yeah, let me just give you, I mean, just I mean, if you just think of the opening of, of, you know, like the Butcher's Dozen, which, you know, I think it's, it's an aspect of kids that, that you simply cannot, you know, run away from. You know, it's, I went with anger at my heel through bogside of the bitter zeal, Jesus pity on a day of cold and drizzle and decay. A month had passed, yet here remained a murder smell that stung and stained on flats and alleys over all it hung, on battered roof and wall, on wreck and rubbish, scattered thick on sullen steps and pitted brick. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a note that you don't hear from any of the of, of the northern poets or any of the or really any other poet in in, in the south. So it's a, you know, and some people, yeah, some people suggest. I'm not sure if it's entirely true, but some people suggest that that he was harmed by that or that his critical reputation suffered you know that certain critics kind of moved away from him because of butchers doesn't i'm not i'm not entirely sure that but you know it's 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 certainly it's possible, I suppose. And it does bring me back again to something that John F. Dean said when he said he celebrated and disturbed our Irish psyche in a unique and unforgettably valuable life's work. So just listening to you read there from that poem, I think that that, that quote is definitely relevant there, isn't it? It is, yeah, sure. But Enda, I know you have a poem you want to read. I do indeed. I have a poem which brings me right back to English class when I was 15 um, with our non-English teacher and she read out a poem called Mirror in February. Now, I had seen my father shave, but I, I, I had always been kind of mesmerised by watching him shave. But in this poem, it brings you right in to the intimacy of the day dawning and the man toweling his shaven jaw, him stopping, him thinking. And it's a deeply intimate poem. And I think at the age of 15, I was shocked by it. I mean, Emily Dickinson says said that when uh, you read a great poem, you know, because it feels as if your head has been chopped off. And that is actually what I felt when I first heard Mirror in February. Um, and so I will read it for you now. I just do think that it was a moment in my life when I 
kind of fell in love with poetry and I could see um, I could see the strength and the toughness of this poem. And of course, it has those amazing last lines. Mirror in February. The day dawns with scent of must and rain, of opened soil, dark trees, dry bedroom air. Under the fading lamp, half-dressed, my brain idling on some compulsive fantasy, I towel my shaven jaw and stop and stare, riveted by a dark, exhausted eye, a dry, down-turning mouth. It seems again that it is time to learn in this untiring, crumbling place of growth to which, for the time being, I return, now plainly in the mirror of my soul. I read that I have looked my last on youth and little more, for they are not made whole that reach the age of Christ. Below my window the wakening trees, hacked clean for better bearing, stand defaced, suffering their brute necessities. And how should the flesh not quail, that span for span is mutilated more? In slow distaste I fold my towel with what grace I can, not young and not renewable, but man. No, it's, it's brilliant and it does it does sound like kind of characteristic note. And it's a note that persists in, in, in the work. And, you, you know, it gets into the, the earlier, or sorry, it gets into the later work. I mean, it's it's like something that he says in Wormwood. It is certain that maturity and peace are to be sought through ordeal after ordeal. And it seems that the process continues until we fail. And, you know, I mean, that sounds bleak. It's maybe not as bleak as it sounds in some ways, because it's this notion of persistence through ordeal. And this has like the enduring Kinsella aesthetic of the search or the quest and the process. Yeah. We, we reach out after each new beginning, penetrating our context to know ourselves. I mean, that's kind of the way he works. You know, it's, it's the sense of knowledge which is reached only after increases uh, in the knowledge of our pain and indignity and trivialities, he says. Uh, but there's still a kind of some kind of joy to be had in the restored necessity to, to learn, you know. Was he a poet, do you think, who was always kind of on a relentless search for order then, Peter? I do, yeah. I think I think that's what it, I think that's one of the, the big things. I mean, and the poems, you mentioned the pepper canister pampas, I mean, in these kind of carefully orchestrated sequences and they enact these intensely private dramas and they're obsessively attentive to like the footsteps of the self, but they, they do so in structures that are very sort of formal and language that's really stripped down. So it's like, it's like almost like looking at Keats's urn. Like it's, the artifact is public and it's minutely crafted, yet it's difficult. Half its force, uh, half its resonance is kind of it's kind of encoded in, in austerity or difficulty. Yeah, he, he was supposed to was constantly self-questioning, wasn't he? And he speaks himself of the fact that his poetry speaks out of failure and increase, the stagger and recovery of spirit. So there, there it does sound bleak, but there is, I think, a recovery of spirit happening, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, no, completely. I mean, it's funny, I remember like at the end of his book, um, Ferocious Alphabets, Dennis Donahue writes about Wallace Stevens. He says that his category, his way of being in the world is not knowledge, but pleasure. And I think if you reverse that, mm. you can get at the, at the achievement of Thomas Kinsley that you, you could say that, you know, his category or his way of being in the world isn't pleasure, but knowledge, the ordeal of self-knowledge. And 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's why, that's one of the things that makes his work valuable. I mean, you have to grapple with it, I think. It's not easy. And it's, again, it's that thing I quoted for, by, by Dennis, what, one of the things that Dennis O'Driscoll said about him, you know, that it's like being in a cinema. You have to kind of adjust your eyes to the, the, the darkness. And that's, that's, that's what you have to do with Kinsella. You're adjusting your eyes to his darkness, I yeah. think. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Well, he's a very atmospheric poet as well. And another poem of his that I loved is Another September. Hugely atmospheric poem, isn't it, Peter? It's in a country house. And I think it wouldn't be fair to talk about Thomas Kinsler without speaking about his wife, Elner, as well. He had a great love for Elner. They had a, a great uh, relationship. And I think if any of of our listeners have seen Arts Lives, Ortiz Arts Lives, and um, which I think they will be putting on again in January. I was speaking to Anne-Marie O'Callaghan, who produced that programme just yesterday. I think it will be coming on air again. And it's something which I think is is very valuable record of Kinston and his life. But Eleanor and him, they feature in it. And you can really see what a loving, caring relationship they had. And Eleanor grew up in Enniscorthy. She, well, near enough to Enniscorthy in Lucas Park there, close to the Slaney. And it was there that in her family home that Kinsler wrote Another September. I mean, I'd love to read it, Peter, if you'd allow me. Another September. Dreams fled away, this country bedroom, raw with the touch of dawn, wrapped in a minor piece. Here's through an open window, the garden draw long pitch black breaths, lay bare its apple trees, ripe pear trees, brambles, windfall sweetened soil, Exhale rough sweetness against the starry slates. Nearer the river sleeps St. John's, all toil, locked fast inside a dream with iron gates. Domestic autumn, like an animal long used to handling by those countrymen, rubs her kind hide against the bedroom wall, sensing a fragrant child come back again. Not this half-tolerated consciousness that plants its grammar in her unyielding weather, but that unspeaking daughter growing less familiar where we fell asleep together. Wakeful moth wings blunder near a chair, toss their light shell at the glass and go to inhabit the living starlight. Stranded hair stirs on the still linen. It is as though the black breathing that billows her sleep, her name, drugged under judgment, waned, and, bearing daggers and balances, down the lampless darkness they came, moving like women, justice, truth, such figures. And that was Enda reading Another September by Thomas Kinsella, one of the greatest poets of this or any other century. And it's Christmas Eve, it's 2021, but we'll be back again next year, 2022. We'll have more books on the table, we'll have more writers to meet, but for now, have a very restful holiday and we'll be joining you again in the new year. Goodbye. Goodbye.